This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Christ. Please take a seat as Pete comes to share with us. I'll come back to the Gospel reading at the end of the sermon, but we'll start with Psalm 70. This is Psalm 70 in the New Revised Standard Version. It begins with a little header that says, To the leader, or the music director, of David for the memorial offering. Be pleased, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire to hurt me. Let those who say, aha, aha, turn back because of their shame. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Psalm 70 claims to record a psalm of David. King David, that is, of course. And a decade or so ago, scholars could truthfully claim that they didn't know of any evidence for a a historical King David outside of the Bible. Now, given how little survives from the 10th century BC, such a state of affairs really wasn't surprising. Nevertheless, those with a bias against trusting the biblical evidence in the absence of external corroboration made much of this absence of evidence, thereby ignoring the British Egyptologist Kenneth Kitchen's famous maxim that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. However, several artifacts have since been discovered that confirm the historicity of King David. For example, the Tel Dan stele, that is an inscribed monument erected by an Aramaic king in ancient Syria sometime before 800 BC, that makes reference to um, Jehoram, son of Ahad, king of Israel, and Azahu, son of Joram, king of the house of David. Both kings are biblically attested in 2 Kings 9-10, and the language of the house of David parallels biblical language for the Davidic kingdom. The Misha stele, a Moabite monument, was discovered in in 1868, but later it was noticed that on this stele there is a probable mention of, again, the house of David. And third, the Shoshank relief. It's a carving from the temple of Amon in Thebes that describes Pharaoh Shoshank's raid into Palestine in 925 BC. And in a list of places that Shoshank says that he had captured, there's a phrase that appears that um, Kenneth Kitchen, the Egyptologist, has translated as the heights of David. 
It's also interesting to note that from the viewpoint of the, of the textual preservation, Psalm 70 is one of the finest. It's one of the Psalms for which we have the most manuscript evidence. And so there's good reason to believe when we're reading Psalm 70 that we really are reading song lyrics written by King David nearly 3,000 years ago. Moreover, given what the Bible tells us of David's rather adventurous, tumultuous life, it's easy to see that in Psalm 70, David is probably writing out of personal experience. Despite the obvious urgency of his situation, whatever precisely that was at the time, we know that David asks God to be pleased to deliver him rather than trying to demand or command God to deliver him. David rightly assumes that God may or may not deliver him, in other words. It's so very easy for us to lay expectations upon God that are rooted in our personal preferences rather than being rooted in the promises of God. We might wish it otherwise, but the promises of God concern our ultimate safety and fulfillment rather than our worldly comfort. Indeed, Jesus promised his disciples that in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16.33 Those who build their lives on the rock of Christ have a firm foundation to see them through the floodwaters. Not a talisman to help them avoid the floodwaters. Have a look at uh, the parable in Matthew 7, round about verses 24. Indeed, we know that Jesus himself asked if he couldn't forego his own cup of suffering and was told that he couldn't. David's attitude in Psalm 70 puts me in mind of Daniel's three friends, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their lives are threatened by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon when they won't bow down to the golden idol that he has set up. And they declare, If we are thrown into the flaming furnace, our God is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us of your hand, your majesty. But if he doesn't, please understand, sir, that even then we will never under any circumstances, serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have erected. Daniel three sixteen to 18. Their confidence in God expresses itself in a confidence that God is able to deliver. Indeed, that on this particular occasion, they believe God will deliver them. But their confidence clearly doesn't depend upon God delivering them. If God does not rescue them, they will still worship God and no one else, simply because of who God is. This attitude towards God of worshipping him simply because he's God 
is exhibited by David in Psalm 70 when he writes, Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. For David, rejoicing in being glad in God simply for being who he is, comes before praising God for doing what he does. Even though focusing upon God's actions would be understandable under the pressure David feels bearing down upon him from those who seek his life, or literally who seek his soul, and who desire to hurt him. And it would be understandable, wouldn't it, if David called upon God to give an eye for an eye, to take the lives of those who are seeking his life, to hurt those who want to hurt him. But he doesn't. Indeed, while David calls upon God to humiliate his enemies, he asks that his enemies thereby be brought to a turning point in their own lives. Let those be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire to hurt me. Let those who say, aha, aha, turn back because of their shame. And the third clause here doesn't seem to mean that David's enemies should turn back from harming him because of their shame. As the previous phrases describe their shame as resulting from their public failure to harm David. Rather, David's prayer appears to be that the the shame that will result from publicly failing to harm him might lead his enemies to turn back to God such that they can then be included in the rejoicing of verse 4. Indeed, the American Standard Version translates verse 3 as, let them be turned back by reason of their shame. This is how focusing upon God and God's nature, first and foremost, despite his troubled circumstances, leads David to treat even his oppressors as Jesus commanded in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. There is a saying, love your friends and hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true sons of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust too. If you love only those who love you, what good's that? Even scoundrels do as much. If you're friendly only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even the heathen do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Amen.